I know. We all could change. Well, good morning. I uh, hope you guys had a great Christmas. Did you guys have a good Christmas? Good, good. Well, I'm, I'm excited to be here with you this morning. Welcome to Kingsway. As you can see, we're talking about zombies next week, and we got a torrential downpour, so uh, sorry to kind of put a rain on the Christmas, but uh, if it's your first time here, if you are uh, new with us this morning, or maybe you came to one of our Christmas Eve services and said, hey, I want to check out what their Sunday is like, I want to give a special welcome to you and invite you to stop by our guest services out in the lobby on your way out. There's people that would love to give you a little bit more information about who we are as a church, what we're about. Uh, my name is Rhett Morehouse. I'm one of the worship pastors here on staff. Uh, excited to share with you today. And uh, as you just saw, we are going into a new series next week in January called The Walking Dead. And our lead pastor, Matt Nickerson, will be back with us that Sunday. He's going to kick off the series. And it's a series that is all about finding life. It's all about waking us up from these idle states. And uh, we're going to be talking about how a lot of times in our lives we can get stuck in a rut. We can get caught kind of in this routine, and, and it kind of seems lifeless, or it seems like there's not purpose and meaning there. And we're kind of closing out Revelation chapter 19 to 22, where Jesus says that I'm going to offer you a new beginning to life with an eternal end, with a new heaven and a new earth, and life that has purpose and life to the full, as he says in John 10. Um, and I'm excited about this series. Our teams have been working on this series for months, and uh, we're just excited to share it. We're going to ask you guys that not only will you come over the next month, but we're going to really ask you to invite people. Every week we're going to be saying invite people, bring people to this series to hear the gospel, to wake them up, to get ourselves out of this kind of idleness. And uh, what I'm most excited about is that we're telling people about Jesus. We're sharing the gospel, we're saying come meet Jesus, come find the life that he offers and go all in. That sounds exciting, right? Good? You guys are like, yeah, kind of excited. I'm all right. See, this, that's what I love. I did this first service too. So I find myself that if I'm not excited about being recharged in Jesus and bringing people to meet Jesus, then The Walking Dead's probably the series that I need to be hearing right about that time in my life, right? So, so come back to that, invite people. But before we can get into that series, we need to kind of wrap up our series of Unwrapped and kind of look at what we're diving into today. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Uh, it'll also be on the screens. And uh, So here we are, we're a couple days past Christmas, and this is the time of year where we talk about how our God, the God of the universe, has come down to dwell among us. He's become flesh, the baby born in Jesus, to give us hope and to give us salvation. So the question that we have to wrestle with now is, what do we do with that? Where do we go from here? And uh, that's exactly kind of what we're going to dive into today. So let's start off in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says this. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw the star in the east and have come to worship him. So if you aren't familiar with the story of the Magi, it's also known as the story of the three wise men or the three kings. But um, what we know is that these were guys who were waiting their entire life for this Messiah, for the Savior. And they saw this star in the east, and that was a sign to them that this prophecy of this coming Savior had been fulfilled. And the prophecy comes out of Micah chapter 5, uh, verse 2 to 5. It says this, it says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, 
and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. And this new ruler, he will stand and shepherd his flock. And the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. So these magis, whether they were uh, exiled Israelites or just God-fearing astrologers, we don't fully know. But what we do know is that they knew about this prophecy. And they knew that there was a ruler who was coming whose greatness would come from God, it would reach to the ends of the earth, and that it would allow them to live securely, as it says in Micah. Now, if you're an exiled Israelite, you're under someone else's rule, to have this prophecy that, hey, someone's offering not only the true king to come and a savior, but he's going to allow us to live securely, you would probably drop everything to go find its fulfillment. And that's exactly what these magi did. They dropped everything to go see how this prophecy was fulfilled. So we keep going in verse 3. And it says that they had just talked to King Herod and asked him where this Messiah was. In verse 3, it says that when Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people. Israel. So the reason I wanted to start with this uh, specific story today is not only to kind of wrap up our Christmas series, but this is the first example that we have or that we know of that after Jesus' birth, people went public about him. These magis were the first people we see to be a witness to Christ after his birth. And uh, if you go on in this story, you're going to see the result of their witness. But the first people they talked to is King Herod. And Matt talked about it a couple weeks ago. King Herod was an insecure leader. He was kind of a megalomaniac. He had his family killed off because he thought, man, they're going to take my power. They're going to usurp my power and take the throne. So this guy's an insecure leader, and this is the first guy. They go, and they say, he's going to know where this guy is born. And they say, hey, you call yourself the king of the Jews, but we've heard about this new king of the Jews that is born. And uh, not only that, but he's actually going to have a greater kingdom than yours that will reach to the ends of the earth. And uh, we're trying to look for him. Where is this guy at? So King Herod is probably thinking, huh, a new king of the Jews. That, that's interesting because I'm the king of the Jews. So you go on in the story, and if you keep reading, um, Herod says, all right, well, go find this. Go find this Savior where he's born, and then tell me where he's at because I want to go worship him. And he probably didn't want to go worship him. He, he knew that he was probably going to kind of do something. So the Magi then later warned in a dream, don't go back to Herod. His intent is to kill this new king of the Jews, this new Savior. So they don't do that. And that's kind of how the story kind of unfolds. And we'll come back to that uh, towards the end of our time today. But what I want to stop and hit on is this idea of going public about Jesus. I want to talk about this idea of going public with our faith. You see, these magis, we don't know their full background. We don't know their stories. Um, But what we do know is that when Jesus came into their lives, it changed everything. When he came into their lives, it changed everything everything. And, and I look at this and I see that these magis put everything on the line in order to find out who this Jesus was and then to go worship him. So we don't know how far they traveled. We know it was far enough to say far away. And um, we don't know if they left family. We don't know if they left uh, wife and kids. We don't know if they left jobs back where they were. But what we do know is that they came and they put a lot on the line to find this Jesus. And they even went and talked to the, the king of the Jews at the time, this Herod, a guy that they knew was probably a little bit nuts and a little bit crazy and was going to kill him. 
They said, hey, we're looking for this new king of the Jews. And then they decided to cop out on him and leave him hanging by saying, hey, we're not going to go back and report to him. We're just going to go back home. And that's a lot to risk to go public with Jesus. That's a lot to risk for these guys. I mean, think if they had misinterpreted the prophecy. Or think maybe if they had gotten caught by King Herod's men. You know, they're taking 10th Street out. The men stop them. Hey, Herod lives back on Maple. Why are you going this way? Their lives were over. The king would have had their heads for that. Think about the risk that they take. So we, we ask, oh, how, what does that have to do with my life? How does that reflect on me? How is that relevant to me today, the Christmas story? And, you know, we don't have kings that are coming after our heads, hopefully. Um, we don't have stuff that we're putting on the line. But, but in today's culture, we put a lot more on the line when we go public with our faith and what we realize. We put relationships on the line with our friends. We put relationships with our families on the line. You might put a job promotion on the line because if the boss finds out that you are one of these Jesus people, they might have a certain connotation and look down on you by that. You might put the actual job on the line if you talk about Jesus in your workplace. Hey, that's not, that's not good in corporate America. We don't want that. So, and we all also even risk public scrutiny as Christians. You know, just a week ago, um, Saturday, I was at my sister's house with my brother, and we didn't grow up in the church, so we didn't know who died on the cross. He's never been to church. Um, smart dude. He's got his doctorate in fishery and aquatic sciences. You're like, I didn't even know if that was a doctorate to get in, but he has it in there. Um, but well, we've had a few conversations about faith. It's been um, tough over the years, but um, we started talking a little bit about faith and church and explaining. The first thing he asked me, he said, so what do you think about this Starbucks cup and this guy that made the big stink about that? I thought, huh, that's the first thing he asked me. And then let me just kind of say as a sidebar, that if your faith relies on whether a non-Christian company puts a snowflake or a snow globe on a red paper cup, then you are missing the points. <laughs> You're missing the point. Let me say this. Let me go. But, you know, and it, to us it seems a little bit like that's what this guy is passionate about. But to him, a non-Christian, that's how the world views Christianity. As they're looking at us and saying, these people are mad about a paper cup? But, but what's, what's crazy is we can, we can sit here and say, you know what, well, that's just the media. They're going to take the extreme person because they want news, and we can blame it on that. But as Christians, we know that the world is going to look at us that way. And I'd say our part in it, is, and I think it's a bigger issue, is that we're not giving them much else to look at. We're not living lives that are much better than being passionate about a paper cup. You know, as Christians, we know the end of the Christmas story, that Jesus was born to be crucified, to pay the price for our sins, and then to raise again to give us new life. And we have to ask, what are we going to do with this life? And Jesus says the calling is the same for us as it was for the Magi. We go public with the news about the Savior. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, all right, hold on a minute, right? You were asking me to risk my job and put this on the line for the sake of Jesus. And, and I would say, is it not a bigger risk to gamble with someone's eternity? And put that on the line. You know, I'm not asking you to go to your boss and, and, and start preaching Jesus. We'll get kind of that later. What I'm asking you this morning is just wrestle with the fact that we've been given the greatest news in the world, the hope of salvation, and that God's calling you, and he's calling me to love people and to share that news with them. That's what I want you to wrestle with this morning. And, uh, you know, I think the other argument people try to say is, well, my faith is personal. It's personal to me, you know. 
I don't talk about politics. I don't talk about religion because I don't want to offend anybody. You don't do that at family gatherings. And I would agree with you. Your faith is very personal, but it is never private. Let me say that again. Your faith is personal, but it is never private. You see the difference? It's a, it's a subtle difference there. Because we have a personal God. In Psalm 139, it says that his thoughts towards us outnumber the sands on the seashore. And in the Gospels, it says the very hairs on our heads are numbered. And we lose these hairs every day in the shower. So if God cares so much about us going bald, how much more does he care about your heart and your life? Our faith is very personal. Our God is very personal. But it's not meant to stay private. It's not meant to stay private. And, you know, reality for us all is that we're all already going public with our lives. Whether you're a Christian or not, the way you live, the way you work, the way you treat your friends, your family, the way you treat the person at the store, the way you treat the store clerk, what you post on social media, all speak volumes to others about our lives publicly. And if you're a Christian here today, what you're saying is I'm committed to God to say all these things, the way I treat people, social media, all this stuff, not only speaks about my life, but it represents Jesus. And that, that's what I want us to see. We're going public already. But rather than kind of say, well, here's the reason why we need to go public, I think the Bible talks about that. I want to talk about the how we go public and how we do this. And, and Paul speaks to this in 2 Corinthians. So you can go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, and Paul's going to speak to this how. And uh, as you're turning there, let me just say that if you are uh, visiting here today, and maybe you're not a Christian, you're not bought in on this church thing, you're not all in on Jesus yet, you're saying, hey, I came to one on Christmas Eve, it was all right, I'm going to come check it out, or maybe you just were sad about the rain today and stumbled in here, whatever it is, or maybe you've been at a church before that they hurt you, or you've known Christians who have frustrated you, Christians who have hurt you before, I just want to say that this next part I'm going to be preaching to the Christians in the house, but I want you to stick with me because you're going to see what God says love is and what God says how this is how you're supposed to go public. This is how we're supposed to go public as a church. So it's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, picks up on verse 5. It says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So we don't fully know who Paul's talking about right there. Um, we do know this is a second letter to the church in Corinth and that someone has caused an issue with them. And he's saying that the punishment that's been put on them by the majority is already sufficient. And he goes on to say, Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you is to see that if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything, Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So I love this, that before Paul addresses the church on here's how you need to go public with the faith, he says you've got to get what's going on amongst yourselves worked out. You've got to figure out what's going on amongst yourselves. And we don't know who this person was that grieved the church. We don't know what and grieved Paul or what they did. But what we do have is a very clear example of how the church should react. He says, to forgive them and reaffirm your love for them. Now, it doesn't mean that we get walked on. It doesn't mean that we change our decisions. But it means that we react in a way that is honoring to God 
and that represents Christ. And he says in verse 11, he says, do this in order that Satan might not outwit us. You see, the enemy knows that if he can get us divided as a church, then he's already won the battle. Because he's saying, if you got Christians who say they believe in the same God, they follow the same God, they live the same way, that can't even forgive and love one another, there is no way that they're going to be able to do that outside of these walls to people that don't believe in their God, that don't care about their Jesus, and don't live the same way. You know, I, I said this first service, and um, it says it's in my notes, I'm going to kind of get on my soapbox. I'm already on a stage, so I guess it doesn't matter. Um, Someone give me a soapbox, I'll stand on it. But um, I've been here three months, and I love what God is doing at this church. I love what he's uh, been doing. I've known about Kingsway for uh, four years or so, and I've known uh, a good friend that's been on staff the last couple years. Um, and we've, we've been through a season, but what I want to say is that when you talk bad about any church, Big C Church, and people do it all over the place, that I just want to call it for what it is. It's sin. It's not honoring to God. It's not honoring to Jesus. Yeah, amen. John chapter 2, Jesus said that he was zealous for his father's house, and he went and turned tables over in that place. And the church is the bride of Christ. And I know that if you talk bad about my bride, we're going to rumble, you know. I don't know if I'll win, but we're going to rumble, you know. Um, but I just want to say, I, I've, I, I've known, known the details and known this, and I've Got to know Matt and the elders here. And these people, they're not perfect by any means, but here's what I love about them is that they are humble. And they're able to admit that. And they have a heart that is after Jesus. They want to further his kingdom. And we need to come behind them as a church. This world, amen. We can celebrate that. What this, what this church doesn't need is more people unforgiving each other. We have to love and forgive each other so that this world can see who our God really is and how powerful he really is. All right, now I'm getting off my soapbox. Back to the notes. So verse 12, he continues. He says, uh, he says, Now I went to Tros to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord has opened a door for me. But I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphant procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, we are an aroma that brings life. Now we're going to look more at this triumphal procession as we get into a Walking Dead series next month. But I want to just give a little bit of background. So back in that time when a king would go and he would win a battle, what he would do is he would take those captives or their prisoners, and he would march them back into his hometown. He would march them back into his city, and the city would just go nuts. They'd be putting flowers out on the windowsills, crushing flowers, burning incense, so that the sweet aroma would fill the air, and this fragrance would fill the air. And to the, cap or to the kings, they're walking, and they're saying, ah, that's the smell, the sweet smell of victory. That's where that phrase comes. But to the captives, although it smells sweet, and it's a sweet aroma, to them, it's a sign we lost we're defeated, our lives are over. This means we're either going to be captives in jail or slaves or that we're dead. It's kind of like, uh, take the Super Bowl, for example. That's the modern day example. So the Super Bowl team wins. They get on their planes and their buses. And they drive back into this town. 
and the town is just going nuts for them, right? They're getting off the bus, everyone's cheering, they're excited, they just won the game, and they're not burning incense so much, but they're burning like 30-year-old couches with fabric that people's back ends have been on, so it's not, it's not the same aroma, I would say, it's not exactly the same aroma, and, uh, and just, I mean, even just to talk about that, I don't, this is another side, but I don't know why, like, guys feel like we need to burn something when we won, you know, or we got this victory, like, I don't ever see women burning couches or anything, it's just, it's a guy thing, I guess. Hey, I think we won. Let's set something on fire. Um, I don't know if it's good or bad, but, but, but think about if that, if that losing team was to come into that town. Not only just the booze that might hurt them, but the cheers of the other people hearing that, man, they're cheering for the other team. It would crush them. It would defeat them. And that's why Paul uses this analogy of aroma. He says the aroma is sweet, but it is perceived differently. Now, the last couple of years, I've had the... Uh, the blessed opportunity to learn a lot about aromas. Uh, my wife and I have a two-year-old and a two-month-old, and uh, yeah, y'all already know where this is going. Um, you know, and, and to them, it's the aroma of life. Their digestive system is working. Everything's going fine. To me, it's the aroma of death, and uh, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's never a time where I felt like I've won anything in that moment in my life. Um, and, and we're, we're blessed to be able to stay in the mission house for a little while, the next few weeks at least. And uh, I, just, I just want to apologize to Josh and the facilities team if they're in here. Um, you'll be docking my paycheck for the aroma these kids left in that house. Um, but but what's, what's crazy about the Christian faith and what's crazy about this passage um, is that when we look back at the birth story, the moment when Jesus was born, he had people going public about him. He had other people talking about his salvation from the moment he was born. And Paul says the same thing here. He says that God uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him. Or to put it another way, he says that God chooses to use us as the way to go public about Jesus. He chooses to use us as the way to go public about Jesus. So the question here that I have for you this morning is what aroma are you going public with? What aroma are you going public with? What do you talk about the most with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers? What do you post about the most on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter? What aroma are you putting out there for the world to see who Jesus really is? And, and, and I know myself in this, and I know a lot of us, we, we try to justify when we read passages like we try to justify the answers to those questions. We say, well, we're at, you know, I, I know I'm coming off a certain way, but that's not my heart in the matter. That's not how I meant it. But yet it still smells bad. You know, and, and I'll say this is where it gets really hard, is that it may not be your desire, it may not be my desire to come off that way, but the reality is that it is you coming off that way. It is me coming off that way. It is in our hearts Jesus said that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, you might justify it again and say, all right, well, that's good because I don't really talk about it and I don't post about it on Facebook or social media. But you still have those thoughts in your head. You have those emotions in your hearts. And you may not be verbalizing it. Your mouth may not be overflowing yet. But your actions, your attitude, your demeanor is all going public. And it's putting off an aroma. So what aroma are you going public with? Um, when we talk about this stuff, uh, Christ calls us to put off a sweet aroma of Christ publicly. Titus says that we're to make the gospel of Christ attractive. We don't change it, 
or we make it attractive. So how do we do that well? If we're called to use it, how do we do that well? And the answer is simple, is that our lives have to be motivated by love. They have to be motivated by love. So we can hold all the truth in the world, but if we don't have grace and love to go with it, it comes off as our opinion. And it comes off annoying. Proverbs 18.2 speaks of opinions. It says that the fool does not desire understanding, but only to hear his own opinion. You know, and I've had circumstances in my life where I've messed this up, and I see a lot of other Christians do it, that we're more worried about being right than we are about being righteous. And until we're in that place of love, motivation by love, with our words and with our actions, we're not truly sharing Christ. We're not truly sharing Christ. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my life to the body, or surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. And I love this passage because this passage here, because Paul gives us an example of the three ways that our lives go public. He first talks about our speech. He says, if you speak in the tongues of men but have not love, you're a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And then he talks about our knowledge or how we think we can call that our attitudes. He says, we can have all the knowledge in the world and all the power to move mountains through prayer, but if it's not founded on love, you are nothing. And then he closes by talking about our actions, what we do, how we live it out. I can give everything I have to the poor, but if I have not love, I gain nothing. Have you guys ever heard a clanging symbol? Like a true clanging symbol. You're like, right, you do that every Sunday. You guys make a lot of noise back there. Cut it out. Uh, I'm not talking about people playing the symbols. I'm talking about a clanging symbol. So my wife got... Uh, got our two-year-old a little Fisher-Price drum set, and she sent me a video of him uh, Wednesday night when we were doing Christmas Eve rehearsal um, and said, hey, he found this in our room. He was screaming for it. I couldn't hide it from him, so I just gave it to him. I'm like, you ruined Christmas. Um, I didn't really say that. I might have said that, but, um, but I kind of have like this love-hate relationship with this toy already because I'm like, man, I love this thing. He's going all at it. He's, yeah, yeah, and just banging on it. And I'm like, yes, he's learning music. He's having fun. He's, he's enjoying it. And on the other side, I'm like, oh, there is no technique to this kid. There's no rhythm. Uh, it's, it's a clanging cymbal. It's driving me nuts, you know. And some of you who have kids, you've done this with your pots and pans. You say, hey, I'm going to have him play pots and pans so I can get the video and get the picture, save it for the memories, and I'm going to take him away from him because it's getting a little bit annoying. Um, and, and for the, but you get someone who can play the drums, who has rhythm and has technique. They can crescendo the cymbal. They can make it sound beautiful. And your perception of how that cymbal sounds changes. And what I love about this analogy is that the cymbal doesn't change. But how it's played changed. And that changed how it was perceived. And that's, that's the same with Christians and our message. The truth of the gospel never changes. But how we play it publicly can change how it's perceived. How we go out with it publicly can change how it's perceived. See, the world is very, very perceptive, and they are watching us. They are looking at us to represent Jesus. 
Acts 11, it says that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, what's, what's interesting about this, this passage out of Acts 11 is that the Christians didn't name themselves. It says that they were called Christians. I mean, little Christ or people that represent Jesus by those who are watching their lives. So my question for you this morning is that when people look at your life, and if you claim to be a Christian, would they call you a Christian? Or are you claiming to be a Christian more than you're actually called a Christian? Man, that, that question hits me on a daily basis. And it is something hard to wrestle with, but it's the reality that we have to wrestle with. See, in this next month, we're going to ask you as a church to go public and to invite people. Because I can sit up here as a paid pastor on this staff and say, oh, you're a pastor, you're supposed to invite people to church. But you guys have a ministry that is well beyond anything I will ever have, that Matt will ever have, because you don't have any strings attached. You say, I know this Jesus, and I want you to come meet him. We're asking you to go public over the next month, but we have to wrestle with this question first. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to invite the uh, communion servers to um, stand up. They're going to go get communion ready. And we're going to go into this time of communion now. Um, and what I want to do is I want to go back to this, this story that we started with, the story of the Magi out of Matthew chapter 2. Um, I love what they did in verse 11. It says that these Magi have come from far. They've told King Herod, and they're bringing their gifts to Jesus. But before they bring their gifts, it said they saw the baby before they gave them their gifts, they bowed down and they worshiped. They bowed down and they worshiped. And that's what I want to invite you to do. We're going to be calling you to go public. But before we can go public, we have to be in the place of love ourselves. We need to bow down and worship, be in God's presence. So let me pray for us and we'll take communion. God, I thank you for uh, just today. I thank you um, for every heart that is in this place. Lord, it is no coincidence that we are here uh, December 27th, 2015 to hear your word and to worship you, to interact with others today. Lord, I pray right now, though, for every heart in this room, I pray for myself included, that you call us to go public, but that we would be able to do it well. We would be able to put off a sweet aroma to people that need to know you. And to the people that do know you that need to be loved and they need to be reaffirmed in that love. Lord, we hold the greatest news in the world. And yet sometimes we act like a clanging symbol. We get distracted by infighting. We get distracted by issues that really don't matter in the light of the gospel and the light of your kingdom moving forward and the light of eternity, Lord. So I, I just pray right now that we would fix our eyes, we would fix our hearts on you in this moment and say, God, we love you, we trust you, we want to worship you so that we can love this world, world well. And the thought comes to mind that um, people who were nothing like Jesus loved being around him. He spoke the truth and he was full of grace at the same time. It says he came in the fullness of grace and truth. So I pray that we would follow that example. That people who are nothing like us 
would love to be around us because they see you in us, Lord. Be with us today. Be with us as we go out of this place to share your love with the world that is dying to know you, literally dying to know you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Servers, you can come forward.